This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The likelihood of being rich and famous and curing cancer, I think, is a little low. Sorry, undergrads. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. It's application season. This week, we talk to an admissions expert about whether you're ready for grad school and where you should apply. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 101. Ooh, I've never done like a three-digit number before. Do I say 101 or 101? 100 and one would apply there as a decimal, right? Isn't that what you learned in sixth grade? Would be 101? One. I'm Daniel Arneman. <laughs> and we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. I don't think you ever got to your own name, did you? I don't think I did. That's fine. I'm Joshua Hall. Fantastic. Good to talk to you, Joshua hey, Dan. Hall. Good to be back. It is great to be back for episode 101 we, and zero. We had a fun time with episode 100, or at least I did. Yeah, you had to edit it, so that was uh, <laughs> that's true. more fun for you than me, I guess. I will, this is a funny story. I was listening back to, to the episode out loud here at my house, and my six-year-old son uh, was in the room with me, and he said, when, when the doorbell audio came through, he said, were all those people really at our house? <laughs> that is a sign of some professional quality. It did sound like it. <laughs> it sure did. Uh, well, I had a lot of fun reconnecting with some of our, our former guests, and, and just great to, to talk to them and reflect on the last three years. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. So what is in store for the next episode, Josh? By the next one, you mean this one. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, we have something big planned. Uh, for our listeners who have been with us for a while, or at least for the last year, you know that we are fans of IPAs. True fact. However, we also are very cognizant of the fact that not everyone shares our love of IPAs. That is a debatable fact, but I guess we'll find out. <laughs> so we want to try to uh, diversify our topics and our palate. Uh, so one thing we did last year was for the season of fall, we drank only beers that were not IPAs. So it was an IPA-free fall. That's right. So we are bringing back the IPA free fall. As we record today, it is not quite fall, although by the time this episode airs, it will be fall. But we are going to go out under with, the wire, under the under wire. the wire. So we're going to go out with a bang, and we're going to drink three IPAs today in preparation for no IPAs during the next few months. And in our defense, before you get too far, Josh, we're going to share three. We're not going to each drink three on the air i don't think that's true we have three bottles uh, but these aren't just any three random ipas this is something we thought would be interesting to do for a while we are going to sample head to head the 60 minute 90 minute and 120 minute ipas from dogfish head brewing okay and tell us what those numbers mean what do the minutes mean in a beard how long it takes you to drink one <laughs> it does actually the higher the ibus and abv it does take me longer so okay. that could be true so these are three different ipas from dogfish head that signify the well, at least for one thing the amount of time they are brewed with hops okay so it's not how long it sat on the shelf or some other <laughs> measure of time i hope not yeah so i think as you'll see as we get into these i'll explain these to you they grow in intensity of 
alcohol content and IBU, which is the bitterness value. Um, so I think let's just jump in. Right and in. with any tasting, we're going to go from lightest to That's heaviest, right. right? That's right. So what I have poured in front of you right now, Dan, is the 60-minute IPA from Dogfish Head. And, and so I wanted to give a little bit of background. So actually, the 90-minute the was the first uh, of these beers. This was the original one. And the brewer, apparently, I was reading about this, watched a cooking show that was teaching viewers how to properly season soup. And you might find this interesting, Dan, because I know you enjoy cooking. I do indeed. Yeah. So so what he said I'm was... I'm medium on soups, so I may or may not take your advice. Okay. Well, this might work for, for other sauces, maybe, also. Okay. But as it stewed and simmered, the chef added pepper in a small but consistent dose throughout the cooking process, um, which he claimed would bring through a more bold and intense savory note. Okay. Uh, and, and this correlates with beer brewing, because you and I have brewed beer together. Mm-hmm. There are different times and ways to add hops, which are the flower of this plant. Mm -hmm. And if you add it early during the cooking process, it has one flavor profile. If you add it dry to the already cooked wort, then it has a different flavor profile. Is that the is that what uh, Dogfish Head is doing with these? Yeah, I think it's uh, the wet hopping versus the dry hopping. I think this has to do with uh, during that hopping process rather than you know, dumping them all in at the same time. Yeah, we used to have, uh, okay, we need to put this in and wait 30 minutes and then put in the next batch of a different flavor of hop and then wait 90 minutes and then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember that process. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting is I was reading about this. Apparently, they had the brewer had purchased a thrift store electric football game. I don't know if you ever played one of these, but part of how this works is, I guess, the playing field vibrates. And so what he did was he rigged this above the brew kettle in a certain way uh, at, a, at just the right angle that it would vibrate such that it would shake hops into the boiling wort at a consistent rate. And asbestos? <laughs> what else is in the <laughs> shaking they, football game? Hopefully they cleaned it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, this happened with the 90-minute IPA first, and then they uh, utilized this with the others. But So the 60-minute IPA is the lightest. So this one, Dan, and I do appreciate the round numbers, the 60-minute IPA is 60 IBUs and 6.0 ABV. All right, so this is a little more intense than a than a session ale, but still the lightest beer we'll drink today. Color on this, I would call dark straw. This is not. Yeah, I think so. We're um, not to an amber yet. Not quite an amber. This is pretty bold, actually, for a lower alcohol content IBU beer. I think this packs a little bit of a punch. What do you think? Um, I was going to say kind of the opposite. I thought oh. this one was not not the opposite, but I felt like this one is. There's some bitterness to it, but it's not a bar of soap in your mouth, mm-hmm. bitterness. And so I thought this one was a, a kind of more approachable than some IPAs that I've had in the past. Uh, but I know that these are quite cold, and as they warm up, we're going to taste that more. Well, and this probably speaks a lot to the fact I have been drinking a lot of legitimate session ales that are in the 4 to 5 ABV range and lower IBUs. So. Do you think that the alcohol, though, changes the flavor profile that much? Do you, we'll, do you pick we'll it up out. on this? Yeah, we will, I guess. <laughs> uh, I think it gives a, a, rich, a more richness of flavor okay. that maybe this has than what I've been drinking. Uh, tasty, though. I would not pour it out. <laughs> That's <laughs> a generous description. Well, let's uh, let's compare it. So what I'm going to do for you now, Dan, I'm going to pour you the 90-minute IPA. So this one's continually hopped for, I'm going to presume, 90 minutes. Uh, but also, Dan, this one, how many IBUs do you think this beer is, Dan? Um, can I look at the show notes or well, you want me to guess? I'll give you a guess. The 60-minute was... Is it 90? Yeah, that's right. It's okay. 90, yeah. 
I do pay attention sometimes when you tell me things. Um, and it is 9.0 ABV. So this is a pretty different animal right here. I'm getting very nervous about the 120-minute IPA, Josh. It's 120% alcohol, yeah. <laughs> which is not possible. You know but, yeah. right, don't mix these up. We've not. Okay. What do you think the color difference? Any difference? It's two shades darker, more toward the amber side. For sure. It's different. Yeah, I would say this is more of an amber, wouldn't you? A light amber. A little more of a foam head. And I can smell the alcohol in it. If you put your nose in there, it, it smells like alcohol, as the, the first one did not. Yeah, I think this is a great comparison of what a higher ABV adds to a beer. Would you say rich? I feel like I always say richness. Do you think that's a good explanation? No, of the we're difference? getting toward the flavors that I perceive if I have a bourbon or something, though. So this one is, um, it's not, I wouldn't call it rich. It's a, I would say a sweetness, but not... Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. It's, it's almost a saccharine. It's, it's almost the same type of sensation as an artificial sweetener mm-hmm. is. That's not the flavor. Which but, sounds awful. <laughs> no, no, but, but it hits your soft palate in a certain mm-hmm. way that I think is reminiscent of that. What do you think of this one compared to beer A? I'm kind of more a fan of beer A just in terms of drinkability. The, the higher alcohol and the higher um, IBUs makes this one a little bit less enjoyable for me. All right, well, hold that thought because now we're going, we are going to move to the 120-minute IPA. And I want to give a special shout-out to our friend Jeff, who was up in Delaware earlier this year and picked this up for us. He knew we wanted to try these three. The 60 and 90-minute are pretty easy to find most places, but the 120-minute is more of a limited release each year. And I want to point out, Dan... Does on, it come over a material safety data sheet? <laughs> Well, I will say on the bottle, Dan, on the label, it says ages well. Oh, my gosh. So you could age this guy. All right, Dan, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the stats on this 120-minute IPA. 72% rocket fuel. <laughs> well, it's 120 IBUs. We're going to taste that, I think. Which is double the 60-minute. However, the ABV on the website is listed at 15 to 20%. How is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> So I was actually... They must be using a champagne yeast or some kind of wine yeast. Well, I'm just looking at our bottle we have that maybe nope, getting no additional information from the bottle we have. So 15 to 20%. <laughs> Is he allowed to transport this across state lines? We may be in trouble. Uh, we, we're recording in Delaware right now at our mobile studio. Perfect. Yeah. All right, let's try this. I'm really curious. This may be the highest ABV beer I've ever had. <laughs> no need to pour myself much of this one. <laughs> What do you think of the color? Well, you gave me two different glass styles, oh, so it's very hard to compare. Sorry. Well, I, I feel like it's six. more orange. Yeah, it's a, I mean, noticeably different than the original. Almost a cloudier. What do you think of the nose? Oh, my goodness. This definitely smells more like uh, a liquor. That wow. I, ooh. There's a, lot, there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> what, what are some <laughs> of the things we could say about I'm that, drunk. Josh? <laughs> that is intense. Wait, how do they recommend that you drink this? Because this is not beer in the way Slowly. that most people consume beer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this definitely has a sweetness. Do you think hmm. they leave more residual sugar or add sugar to it? Like a can- It must be like a candy sugar yeah, in order you know, to get it to that level? I, well, I think to, to achieve an ABV that high, you know, you'd have to add a certain amount of sugar for the yeast to keep uh, consuming and producing alcohol, right? I assume you're right. Yeah, that is that is a little far off the end of the spectrum for me personally, but I, I'm enjoying the fact that we got all three to try so that we could taste the progression from one to the other. I'm going to go back to my 60-minute <laughs> and, and just see how dramatic that difference is. You know, I mean, they talk about this 120-minute IPA apparently flies off the shelf. This is a big deal. 
what do you th- why, why do you think that is clearly people like this yeah this is not the type of beer that you're slamming back on your inner tube floating down the river right this is not a, a summertime sipping beer this is i'm going to have an event and maybe sit and chat with my friends and all of us together are going to drink one 12 ounce bottle <laughs> I think, you know really i think could be but, but honestly dan i mean at 15 to 20 percent abv these are all 12 ounce bottles so drinking this one 20 minute ipa is like drinking three of the 60 yep. minute i don't but maybe the flying off the shelves is just the scarcity i don't understand exactly why you would need a lot of this yeah, I wonder. Uh, I would be interested to hear from any of our listeners that really like these high ABV beers and why you like them. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like drinking wine. I mean, it has the same alcohol level as a wine does. Actually, it's probably more than most wines have. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure, Josh. Yeah, I agree. I wonder if you could pour it over some vanilla ice cream or... And a squirt of lime. <laughs> Maybe so. That would be sacrilege, I'm sure. Uh, all right, Dan, well, I thought this was fun. This is something I've been wanting to do for quite some time is to drink all these together and compare. And a great way to kick off the IPA free fall. Everyone is released. We have satisfied ourselves <laughs> by going all the way off the end of the spectrum. And now we are done with that for a little while until the spring. I'm ready for a break. All right, Josh. Well, let's take this second to thank our sponsors at Promega. Um, we just wanted to remind everybody, hopefully you got out to their PCR uh, webinar event and got to learn more about that. But if not, Promega's technical support team is still there for all the random questions that you have. How do you interpret these results? What reagents should you be using? What does that protocol step mean? It's a team of scientists ready to help you out. So you can call or chat online. Just visit promega.com slash PhD support. All right, Dan. Well, we have a great interview with Beth Bowman from Vanderbilt on graduate admissions that season is here and so we're going to jump right into that we're going to bypass science in the news this week i think this is a great great timing for this interview it is the time of year when undergrads and technicians and other folks are who are thinking about the phd programs are starting to look towards um, applying to grad school a lot of those deadlines are in december and january and right now i think the question on a lot of students minds are, do I want to go to graduate school, and where the heck should I apply? Yeah, they're not late yet. Nobody needs to panic. Is that true? No panicking yet. Uh, That will come in a month or two. So enjoy another sip of your 120-minute IPA, (laughs) and have a listen to our interview with Beth Bowman. My name is Beth Bowman, and I'm the Assistant Director of Biomedical Graduate Programs at Vanderbilt University. And my major part in this role is really to direct admissions for our our umbrella biomedical graduate programs. So that's really my passion, is to help students get into fantastic graduate programs not just a general here's where to apply or here's how to apply, but actually advising students from my perspective. And we had the pleasure of meeting Beth. We were in uh, on the Vanderbilt campus just a few months ago, Josh, and uh, the, the student organizers set up meetings for us to go meet different uh, faculty and administrators and students. And Beth was one of the people we sat down with. And, and I got to say, Beth, it was so much fun just <laughs> connecting over uh, the common threads. You know, we none of us went to the. We didn't go to the same school. We didn't have the same exact experience. Mm-hmm. But there was. We had mm-hmm. so much in common, having gone through this graduate process. And now, 
uh, finding work maybe outside of the lab, but really enjoying it and helping other students to make that same transition. So we had such a good conversation with Beth, we just had to have her on the show. Yeah, I think we definitely found a kindred spirit. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I agree. I think everyone, grad school is both an individual process, but also it can be a shared experience. And your your struggles and challenges are, are probably shared with your peers, not just at your school, but elsewhere. And um, yeah, we share that passion of helping others. <laughs> so Beth, you are a wealth of knowledge as far as admissions goes, and you work um, directly with admissions at you know, at a major biomedical research institution for PhD programs. So we thought you would be a great person to talk to about some of these different processes and, and points on the timeline as, as people think about entering into graduate school. And we thought a really great place to begin, especially right now. I know a lot of our undergrads are finishing up and thinking about their, their next steps. And, and we have others who are maybe out there starting to think about the admission season that will quickly be here in the fall. So we thought a really useful topic might be to take a step back and not necessarily talk about the application itself, but just how do you look out at the landscape and even think about where do I want to go? What types of program is the best fit for me? Where do I even want to apply? So, mm-hmm. so how does that sound? Let's, we could talk about that today. That sounds perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> so the world is my oyster. I'm a young undergrad, or at least an undergrad, right? And <laughs> I, I look out at the hundreds of places I could possibly apply, and there's no way I, I could afford all those application fees. What am I supposed to do to narrow it down? Yeah, or... or Taking a step back, I mean, what do you, and, and Dan, I know you probably have thoughts on this too. I'm, I'm, let's say I am an undergrad who's been working in the lab a little bit, like you did, Beth, or like, like we did. How do I even know if I should apply to PhD programs? Ah, I love that question. I love that question. And the reason I, I really appreciate that is I think there are a lot of really great reasons to apply to grad school, and I think there are some not-so-great reasons. I think... The first thing that's important is, of course, knowing that you love research. And as we all did, we all experienced research. We knew that we loved the process. But I think you have to enjoy it more than just, oh, I could do this the rest of my life. I think there has to be a natural curiosity there about how the world works or how cells work or or have a a natural desire to want to solve problems. And that could be big medical problems, or that could be even for me, solving puzzles, like designing experiments that answer a question in hopefully the perfect way possible. But I see some people who apply to grad school for reasons that I don't want to ever say there's a wrong reason to apply to grad school. I think that would be um, I'll say it. Just tell me, what the, tell me what the things are and I'll say it. I'm the one who says well, what he thinks. Okay, so there can be some good peripheral reasons, but... I, I want to be I, super rich and famous. Is that a good no, reason? No, that's the best. That's a, no. That's a tough road to hoe if you decide uh, that's the reason. I want to cure cancer. Yeah. Good reason? The likelihood of being rich and famous and curing cancer, I think, is a little low. So. Sorry, undergrads. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, guys. Tell, tell, us, sorry, tell guys. us some of the good peripheral reasons, but not main reasons. What are the common ones you hear from students? Yeah, I hear commonly, and I appreciate this peripheral reason, but um, I want to give back to my community. And, of course, 
hey, that's what you you and I are doing right now. We're trying to give back to others in, in our current careers. But going to graduate school really out of a reason to, to just help people, I, I don't think for the type of, you know, biological, biomedical research that's in our programs, at least, it's not going to give you that immediate feedback from other individuals that you'd want. Yeah, now, I think, granted, I think teaching, you know, can help with that. But but if it's to help the help your community, especially medically, I don't think you'll feel that in the time in graduate school. You know, I think I've, I've seen students who, you know, really burn out or really feel like they have mismatched expectations when, you know, they enter for, for that reason of wanting to, to help the community. And you really, you really are very far removed when, mm-hmm. you know, you're pipetting small volumes of liquid into other small volumes of liquid day after day. It's very mm-hmm. easy to lose sight of, of how, how on earth is this helping anyone right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that experience myself. I mean, you, you come in with these wide eyes about how I'm, you know, Josh, you make the, the statement that I'm going to cure cancer, but how many applications does that appear on where, mm-hmm. where the story mm-hmm. is my uncle, my aunt, my brother, somebody I know was sick in this way and I want to cure that. And then if that is the only reason, if you don't actually like the action of research, how quickly that long-term goal blurs into the distance and you're left at the bench by yourself doing a task you dislike um, mm-hmm. over and over and over, I think uh, that will burn you. So so maybe a controversial statement that I want to give back to my community is not a good main reason, but <laughs> well, it is a good peripheral reason. And I think, Dan, yeah. you know, because I agree with you, you know, reading a lot of personal statements, you you definitely see that a lot of, you know, my family member had, had this affliction or, or dealt with this cancer, and that's what got me interested. And I, I do think, and Beth, you can get your feedback on this too. I think that can be a totally valid reason as a spark that first gets right. you yeah, interested That lights in the, the fire, lab. yep. Mm-hmm. But I think, Beth, you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, the vast majority of what you're doing in a PhD program in a science PhD program is working in the lab. So if you kind of are lukewarm on working in the lab at the time you start, it's going to be a tough, a tough go for you. Yeah. So maybe, maybe the, the right way to approach this one, and may, I hope you have more Beth, but the right <laughs> way to approach this one is if that is your primary motivation that you want to give back to the community, what you're saying is there are other ways to do that. Maybe you That's are exactly, maybe you yes. are educating people. Maybe you become a caretaker. Maybe you are raising money for programs that supply medical care to people who don't have access to it. That would be a fulfillment of those things that you really want. Mm-hmm. Sitting at a bench mm-hmm. is going to feel very detached. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think, you know, I'm sure that maybe some of the listeners out there are facing this challenge of, well, do I do apply to graduate school or do I apply to medical school? And um, there are other programs besides those two. Um, there's, Bite there's your tongue. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but there are. You can also and, be a dentist. Or a pharmacist. Oh, or a pharmacist. Exactly. Hey, yeah. So we talked about one reason that yeah. maybe peripherally uh, valuable, but shouldn't be your primary motivation for choosing to go. Are there others? Yeah, there is. I think the other big one um, is don't just do it uh, either for the degree or because it's the next step or because you're going to get a stipend. Talk talk about those for a second. You know, I'm grateful to have a PhD and sometimes we can be, that PhD can be valued by the community. Um, but 
I think that that <laughs> should not be your main reason for, for getting a PhD. Oh, I just, I want a PhD. I want, if you, oh, kind of an alternative to this is if you don't get into med school, don't let this be your secondary option just to get a degree. I, I feel like not only is that, is it going to be a struggle for you, but to be honest, I have to admit in interviews, when I interview students, I can tell. And I think that that comes through. And if, and we don't admit those students because it's, it's not going to be a fun journey for you to get your PhD. Um, so don't do it just for the degree. Who does it just for the stipend? You said stipend at the end of your yeah. uh, sentence. Have Nobody you, does have you that. not heard that? Hey, man, oh. they're paying. $30,000 now. The worst yeah. when we were in school. I mean, it's not a huge amount. <laughs> I did it, it for is... the $18,500 a year. That's why I did it. Oh, $18,000. i am dating myself now. Yeah. <laughs> all, of our hum- all of our humanities PhD listeners are cursing our names right now. Exactly. But, it, but it's a way to, are you, are you saying it's a way to stay in school and not take on debt? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So I don't know what to do next, but I know I'm pretty good at school. Therefore, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a I had a friend that that I knew as an undergrad who actually applied to MD PhD programs uh, because she saw it as a free way to do medical school, yeah. and that did not yeah. go well. She ended up dropping out of the PhD portion, and I think had to pay back the the stipend from the first two years. So that was not a good choice. Luckily, medical yeah. school is real cheap, so it, <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> especially where oh, we no. should have seen where she went. Oh my god. Uh, I mean, yeah, trust me, you have to have strong motivations to get through med school and all that debt, but grad school is not going to be an easy 30 grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Beth, is that, is that pretty much all the peripheral reasons? Those were the major ones. Yeah. So, yeah. so, okay, well, let's say I've, I've decided I really love research right now and definitely want to continue learning more about becoming a scientist. And I think a PhD program is where to go. But but now what do I do? There's so many programs out there. What's my next step? Yeah, I definitely remember that feeling of being overwhelmed at how many schools there were, how many programs there are. Um, I think to me, I was still in that undergrad mentality, and that's a major point I want to make is schools that you have probably heard of by you know from being fantastic undergraduate institutions. That doesn't mean that they're going to be fantastic graduate institutions for biomedical research. So I think that's kind of the first thing to keep in mind is that this is a totally different beast from applying to undergrad. Without, without naming names, can you talk about um, the, the qualities that might make it a great undergrad institution and not a great grad institution? Like, what should we be looking for? I, so I will say I was, I applied to a couple of, a couple of schools that were Ivy League schools, because I thought, well, if they have that good of a name, they've got to have good science. And to be honest, the thing that makes a good graduate institution is strong biomedical research. It really, it it doesn't have much to, it may not be connected at all to the undergraduate education. So if you don't know people in science and your family hasn't been in science, like, like mine wasn't, I feel like that was a misconception that a good school is a good school. So you really have to focus on the quality of the research that's occurring at an institution. Yeah, and what would be some ways what would be some ways that you could figure that out that the quality of research is good at a particular institution? 
It's inversely correlated to their rank as a party school. No. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Probably not, actually. In- inverse I mean, to might, beer sales. Know, maybe yeah. not. <laughs> um, so this is going to be controversial, I think. Um, I, just to paint a broad brushstrokes, I, I think you should never use national rankings for you know scientific research as a final decision factor in where to go to graduate school. I don't think that's controversial at all. I think that's wise advice. <laughs> but but the but the but part is gonna be the controversial part. Oh okay we part. haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> but I think it's a good idea maybe to start there. Um if you're really if you if you feel like you're you're starting from nowhere and you don't know what is a good research institution, and maybe it's because I I didn't really have a good concept of that. I think starting with rankings and not picking the top five or even the top twenty five, but looking at the top I don't know fifty one hundred, but just getting a gauge of who's somewhere on that list versus just throwing out names that you've heard from undergraduate quality. So it's less about, oh, I got into six and five, therefore I must go to five. It's more about one through 50 are probably good targets to think about and check check the other resources to find out if it's a good fit for you. Yeah, I'll say. Exactly. so, So some advice that I give to students who who are looking to apply to graduate school. And this, I guess, is speaking for a moment to the individuals who want to do biomedical PhD, is I think an even better proxy for strength of research than, than rankings is look at the level of NIH funding. And, and, yeah. th- and we can mm-hmm. actually post a link to this on our show notes, but mm-hmm. um, NIH Reporter is, is great. Mm-hmm. You can actually go on there and you can search for the current fiscal year and search by domestic higher education institutions and then sort those from most money, most research grants brought into least. And, and, and just like we were saying with the rankings and Dan, you were saying too, it's not like number one is the best research school and number two is the next best, but, but probably inclusion in that list of the top 50 or 75 schools means there's a lot of, active research going on. Yes. There are faculty there who are writing grants right now and getting funding to do research. And funding coming in means research being done, which is important as a graduate student. I always tell students that second place is the first to lose. So you better get into number one. <laughs> they don't let me talk to students anymore. That's, so it's no problem. That's right. I, I totally agree with you, though. I, I think that um, maybe using a... a a set of different lists is, is a good idea, but only using it in very general terms. Um, but NIH dollars is honestly, those are the two things that I usually advise students to start with is, is national rankings and NIH dollars because it gives you a sense of how well respected a school is, but then also exactly how much active research is going on. And with the NIH um, funding levels, you can actually look within a specific field of research. And that, if you're very focused in what sort of research you want to do, you know you want to do neuroscience or you know you want to do immunology, you could even get pretty detailed to that level. And it would be a good idea to see how much active immunology research is being done versus, you know, if you really don't care to do cell biology, but a school has a ton of funding for cell biology, but not a lot of immunology, that might be useful for you to know as well. 
that becomes so important down the road when you are doing lab rotations and there's mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. one lab accepting students at your institution exactly. and you are stuck. So yes. uh, the level of funding determines the number of students that those labs can accept and more mm-hmm. tends to mean more options. Exactly. I totally, and that's what, that's what it's about is giving yourself plenty of options for rotations. <laughs> yeah. So what other things should I consider? So, so I look around and identify seven or eight schools that seem to, to have some 50. active. We're down to 50, <laughs> I think, based on the results. Yeah. yeah. I looked at the top 50 NIH funded schools and uh, 27 of those are actively doing research in the area that I'm interested in. Um, so now what, now what do I think about? Yeah, I think a lot of the rest of this is is a little more personal, um, but that's where going to people you know in science and getting advice from your advisors um, is, to me, should be maybe even before you look at lists or in conjunction with you looking at lists, that should be one of your first uh, places to stop. So whether that's your PI that you've been working for or... Um, Maybe an undergraduate advisor at your undergraduate institution would be great. I will say if you're at a smaller liberal arts school um, and your undergraduate advisor has been, hasn't been doing research for a, a long period of time, they may not know what is actively, what institutions are actively the best research institutions. Um, so going to people who have done, who are actively doing science in a field that you care about is a, is to me one of the top places. But don't just go to one person. Go to as many people as you can think about. Don't just rely on the PI. If you're an undergraduate doing summer research right now or if you're research tech working in a lab, talk to the postdocs. Talk to the other graduate students. See where they applied. See how their interviews went. See, Ask them why they picked the schools they went to. But get a wealth of feedback and don't rely on an N of one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I, I remember one thing. So, so I did a lot of those things. I went to a small liberal arts school and only did research as an undergrad and was working with a new PI. A lot, you're basically painting a picture of me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I asked him, and, and ironically, he had been a postdoc at Vanderbilt before he uh, came to <laughs> to, uh, to my institution and said, "Oh, you should apply to Vanderbilt." So I did <laughs> because he told me to. Um, but another thing that I that I took advantage of, or that I considered, and I'd be interested to get your take on on how important you think this is. But you know, I grew up in the southeastern United States, and so I had this idea that that geographically that was somewhere I wanted to be. So mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I looked around to try to narrow down the list at what are what are schools in in this region of the country. What do you what do you think mm. about that as a as a factor to consider location? You know, I think I don't think there's a right answer there. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I was similar to you. Um, I, I did look a little bit in the Northeast and a little out West as well. I knew for me, I, I couldn't be living in California while my family was, was in the Southeast, but I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a right answer. So I think what I would advise, um, advise others to do is really think about what matters to you. If location matters, the really great news is this United States has so many awesome research institutions and research programs that if you decide you want to stay within a geographic location, 
you're, I'm sure you're going to find a good number of good quality schools, but you know, if, if you're more adventurous than I was, or, or you were Josh, then look, look broadly. I think one thing that I've noticed is I've seen a lot of students apply broadly, but then after the interviews or during the interviews, that's what helps them decide, can I move across the country? <laughs> do I, do I even, if I'm from, from the Northeast, do I even like my perception of living in the South? Granted, you have one or two days to kind of establish your perception of, of the South or of the Northeast or of California. But I don't think there's any, any problem with limiting yourself based on location or not limiting yourself. You just need to be honest with yourself. And especially, you know, you've mentioned early on about application fees. You'll be doing yourself a disservice if you're not honest with yourself um, cause maybe you'll be applying to too many schools and spending too much on the application fee. If, if you know, there's no chance that you're ever going to live in the cold Northeast. <laughs> no, no, that is true. And, and, you know, a couple things that, that come to mind, you know, one, I re- actually remember this, this advice that I was given during a graduate school interview that I had at a, a different institution that I didn't end up going to, but the faculty member said, there are two things you should consider. The first thing you should consider is go somewhere that you will be happy living because if you aren't mm-hmm. happy living in a certain place it's going to be hard for you to be maximally productive in the lab and and the second of course then he said the second thing you should consider is go to the most prestigious university that you can uh, this happened <laughs> to one be, ranking <laughs> this happened to be inter- when i was interviewing at a very uh Ah. nationally prestigious institution <laughs> that I did not end up choosing. but uh, So I thought that was biased. But the first part of the advice did stick with me. I think that's true. Uh, but I will say, you know... It's like two truths and a lie from, <laughs> from your advisor. That's right. Uh, you know, I, do, I tell students all the time, because um, a lot of what I do actually is advising students at that level where they're transitioning to applying to graduate school, is, you know, I think what you said is true, True, Beth. One unique feature of, of science graduate school is that you actually do get to go visit that place as part of the interview process and as part of the decision-making process. But if you don't apply, you're not going to have a chance mm-hmm. to say yes or no to that place. And so, you know, the good news is you're not going to have to make a choice sight unseen, but maybe go visit. And I can remember, um, this has happened a few times with the program I run, where I'll have students from the West Coast, say, and and they'll say, well, you know, I definitely want to get back to the West Coast. Then I'll have students from the East Coast who say, I definitely want to stay here on the East Coast. And invariably, it's so funny that at the end of the day, they go on these interviews and suddenly the tune completely changes. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the West Coasters end up staying here and the East Coasters decide they want to try something new. But but one thing to consider is, is grad school is potentially an easy time to go explore a different place and go be oh, yeah. temporarily in another place to, to try it out. So, you know, that's one thing to consider. And sometimes I wish I would have put myself out there a little bit more at the application stage. Mm. Um, I know mm-hmm. Dan was a little more adventurous with his. Are you kidding me? You're kidding, right? Well, I know you applied to two schools. I right? applied to precisely two schools, but neither were and close remember, to where you lived. Beth, I don't remember who was the conversation we had with you in your office that day, but I remember saying I applied to two schools, and everybody just kind of looked down at their lap, like, "How could you only apply to two schools?" <laughs> Say when you're that good, yeah. Right? Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> yep. I think it was more like, "Oh wow, you had no idea what you're getting yourself into." <laughs> 
<laughs> Why did you pick the ones you did, Dan? Because you uh, the first they were one, very, yeah, very random. Yeah, the first one I applied to because my um, advisor, my undergraduate advisor, went there for a postdoc. Okay, mm-hmm. so the, you used mm-hmm. your network. And the second mm-hmm. one, because my friend from chemistry class thought it was a good school. <laughs> was that UNC? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, it is a good school. Aren't you glad you had that <laughs> conversation? <laughs> Let me make a list of how not to go to grad school. <laughs> Step one, yeah. listen to your friend from chemistry class. <laughs> I think that's a good point, though, is to not not limit yourself to, to just a a couple of schools, potentially. Granted, we don't do people. what I did, folks. <laughs> don't listen to him. <laughs> you'll, turn, you'll turn out like Dan. You guys know how Dan is. Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. dangerous. <laughs> Only you know, Josh. <laughs> but, but I do have, I'm sure you guys see this too. I have people who have been a, a, a tech at Vanderbilt um, for maybe a couple of years. They, they love Nashville. They love Vanderbilt. They're only going to apply to Vanderbilt because they know how much they love it. I always tell them, I'm glad you like Vanderbilt. That's fantastic. Please apply elsewhere because not only will you have the opportunity to potentially visit other schools and realize how much you love these other schools as well and how much you enjoy exploring these new parts of the country, but if you do end up coming back to where you started, you'll be more confident that this is where you need to be. So I'm not saying be frivolous and apply to schools just for a free visit. Please don't hear me say that. University um, of Hawaii, here I come. I mean, you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that's a good point to to make sure that you're putting out the hook at multiple places so that you kind of see what your options could be. Beth, let me ask you this. So so myself and Dan, and, and you may have been this way too, at the time that I applied to graduate school, you know, I was coming out of undergrad and I was, what, 21 years old and I didn't mm-hmm. yet have a family and, and I, was, mm-hmm. I was relatively flexible with where I could mm-hmm. go. And, and I know that, that that's not true for, for all people who are applying to graduate school. They might have family or personal reasons that maybe they need to stay in their region um, where they are now. Is that something that, if, if I'm that person... Um, one, is that something that I should be upfront about in my application or am I just sort of out of luck? Do I, re- do I need to be able to cast my, my net widely to, to go to the next step or what do you think for somebody like that? That's a, that's a great question. Um, let me really quickly say that I, I don't want anybody to hear me saying applying to graduate schools is, is challenging and they're competitive. So I don't want anybody to stay regionally and not realize that they should probably apply broadly to a range of um, different levels of schools. Um, But, but your question is bringing up a a really good point that, that I have very strong feelings about. And I'll briefly mention there's this phrase called the two body quote unquote problem. (laughs) And it's called that, even though I don't think it's a problem. So what the two body problem is, is when you have someone else, or you could even say a family, uh, this could be a, a a partner or even, you know, parents that you have to take care of. I have the, four, have some... the four body problem now. Oh, you do? <laughs> I'm about to have the four body problem. You are. Congratulations. That's why <laughs> no, you're not drinking. You. That's why you're not drinking beer with us right no, now. No, yeah. sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is... Uh, a well-known situation where people have others they have to consider when making this decision. My advice is, of course, 
you know, as I said, be honest about what considerations you have to make. If, if that makes you want to stay somewhat regional, you know, don't feel like you have to move across the country and let, you, you could explore that. But in terms of your application, that's a, that's a great question of, do you, do you bring this up or when do you bring this up? I think my suggestion for that is I definitely think when you're applying to graduate school, you, you don't necessarily need to mention this in your application. Um, I don't think there's any benefit that you get for mentioning it. Um, but there definitely could be a benefit once you get the interview. And at that point, there's usually not a problem with mentioning that you have personal considerations. So um, I actually did have a two-body problem when I was applying to graduate schools. My, my now husband, who's my fiance at the time, was applying to medical schools. And we knew we wanted to move somewhere together. And I am so grateful that once I got an interview at, at the school we ended up going to, I, I asked, I said, do you happen to know anything about the med school process? And my, my boyfriend, fiance, is, is applying to med school there. Do you know anything? And amazingly, he was totally deserving of getting into medical school, but it was me asking about him that got him a second look at that school and what ultimately got him into that medical program. And I'll say I do the same thing regularly at Vanderbilt. If I hear of a student who has someone else that they're wanting to consider with this decision, I'll make sure that I give that application a second look or that I ask the medical school or the nursing school or whatever um, divinity school uh, a recent time if they can take a second look at it at a candidate. I think what, what you're saying is worth uh, making sure is is explicitly clear for for students. So for science PhD programs, you know there there is a difference at the application step and at mm-hmm. the interview step. And mm-hmm. and and by the time you get to the interview step, um, at least in the sciences, and they're you know they're flying you out and they're feeding you. At that point, programs do shift a little more into recruitment mode, and they've already indicated that they're very interested in having you in their program by that point. And that's sort of a key differential, it seems, from the application step and the interview step. Would that be correct? That is, thank you. You phrased it better than I could have. <laughs> that's exactly my point is I wouldn't ignore, I wouldn't ignore that or, or make it unknown throughout the whole process that I can understand. I have, I wasn't sure about how professionalization worked into this? How professional was I being? Was I being unprofessional by by bringing up my boyfriend? But I think we all understand how, as you've kind of alluded to, Josh, your home life and your happiness in your home life is very important for how successful and how happy you are in your work life, in your graduate life. So you're right. During Once you've got the interview, there's a lot more leeway to make sure that your any other considerations you have are well known. Now you can't don't I wouldn't go in demanding <laughs> for um, if you want me, you better let exactly, my boyfriend yes. in the medical school or I'm walking. Right. Uh, yeah. Beth, have exactly. you encountered have you encountered a situation where the applicant is applying to the graduate school and the partner 
isn't applying to a school, but just needs to find work in the new city if, and, and is there anything that you try to do in that situation or that the school tries to do like yeah. offer a networking type of connection or anything? Yeah. So I'll mention what I do may not be what, what other programs do, but I think it's worth any applicant to ask. So what, whatever schools you're applying to, at some point, I think it's worth asking the admissions director or bringing up your considerations to the admissions director. Um, Cause it might, they might be willing to do something for you. So for, for me, what I do is once I know about this, I reach out to my personal network. And if someone's just looking for another job and I can't actually impact an application, but if they're just looking for a job, I make it a, a little more personal. And I reach out to my network to see, is there anybody that I know that I could potentially try to make some sort of connection happen? And that may not be the case at every every institution, but I think that it would be worth at least letting that um, consideration be known. Yeah, I've, I was going to say, I've met some, some applicants during the interview um, at my institution who indicated that they had a spouse or partner who was a teacher, for example, and, and mm. my wife is a teacher in the area, mm. and, and you know, I've put them in touch with her just to learn more as they're making their decision, just to learn about what the opportunities are in this area and what it's like to be a teacher here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Asking it's worth it's worth asking. Yeah, it's not yeah. as if it's not as if you're asking them to find your partner a job, but I right. think it's a case where oh, my partner is into digital marketing. Well, you probably know Nashville's digital marketing scene better than somebody who's never been to Nashville before, right? Even if you're not mm-hmm. an expert in it or somebody in your network does. So it's worth finding out uh, whether there are connections that can lead to connections that might lead to a job. Right, exactly. So Beth, we have been talking for a little while now. Do you have any <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say about considerations for, for choosing a, a grad school? Yeah, I think in terms of knowing where to apply, I think that it is a surprisingly personal journey, but I, I want to really encourage everyone to take the time to make sure that you have reasons for why you're applying to certain programs, that you know the programs well enough before you submit an application that you could in some world see yourself there. I know that it's a daunting process filling out all those applications, but do yourself the service of uh, having having a good good handle on why you're applying to your different schools. And another quick side note to that: you should have a spreadsheet, I think, of of the schools you're you're applying to, and list your reasons there. That'll help you down the road when you're writing your personal statements to make them tailored to each school. But, it's a two-line um, spreadsheet. So line one says, because my advisor <laughs> went there. Line two says, because my friend from chemistry told me to. Yeah, if you have friends it's in chemistry, easy. if you're not working that, you know, that network, <laughs> it's an easy spreadsheet. My personal statement was so clear on those two things. I want to, Dan, I I haven't even told you this, but I think one thing we should do on the show, because we're going to talk about personal statements. I think, Dan, we should dig up our personal statements (gasps) to graduate school. Oh, it's going to be so embarrassing. We should should annotate them, go over them on the air. What do you think? Oh, I feel so scared. I have no idea what mine says. (laughs) I I remember mine, and it's embarrassing. (laughs) I'm sure I said, I really want to cure cancer, and I want to help people, (laughs) and all that. Okay, I'm I'm not showing up for that episode. (laughs) 
Oh goodness! Well, Beth, thank you so much for for talking to us today. And and also, is there is there anywhere people can find you or anything that you want to plug? Ah, yes, thank you. Um, so, of course, you, if you if I can ever help you, I'm very into personal um, advising and mentoring. Um, Google Beth Bowman or Elizabeth Bowman Vanderbilt. But a very important thing that I am surprised I have not brought up yet is I actually was inspired by your podcast and started a blog um, that I write specifically for young scientists. It's called Materials and Methods. And I called it that because it's the main purpose is to give you a, a, a good toolkit for applying to graduate schools. Um, so I have a lot of posts in there about um, what are the parts of the application? What parts of the application matter the most? What, how, what you should consider, like what we've talked about today about where to apply. I have some good comments in there, even about going through the first year and how to, how to pick your rotation mentors, um, how to do well in a rotation, how to pick your thesis lab. I, I was not given I, ideal advising. So I wanted to create this blog so that everybody has kind of a equal foundation um, for, from where to start. I think you'll enjoy it. It's called Materials and Methods. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm waiting to talk to the person who did have ideal advising. When we find that person, <laughs> we're going to devote a whole series. The, 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 person, the person who got the majority of their advising from the Hello PhD podcast, would that be the there ideal advising? I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Well, Beth, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today, and, and we will certainly have you back again in the future. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right, Dan, that was great. I enjoyed talking to Beth again. So much information there. Um, we didn't expect to talk about the two-body problem, but it's something that I think people have asked us about. So if that is your situation pay special attention to what uh, she advised there, which is to go and when you get the interview, once you're over that hurdle, uh, be sure to bring it up because people are willing to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Josh, it, it occurs to me that you do recruiting, that you are advising students. Um, you are trying to choose students that will do well at uh, your particular institution. Do you ever meet students that you say, uh, you absolutely should not be here. This is not the right fit for you. Or are you always trying to draw them in? Well, part of my job, Dan, one of the things I do is I'm involved in leading a post-baccalaureate program for students who want to go on to PhD programs. And, and so while they're in that program, they're you know at my institution doing research and also preparing graduate school applications. But one thing that I'm always really clear to them about is I'm certainly going to help them answer some of these questions that, that Beth talked about. You know, is this what they want to do? Do they really, after spending some um, time in the lab, it's going to grad school, what they really want to do? Um, but also, what are the schools that are the best fits for them? And, you know, in some cases, it may not necessarily be my institution, right? And a couple of, of circ specific instances I can think of, you know, there was a student who had a specific research interest that we didn't really have a lot of people doing that type of research. And so... So you could recognize that and say, you know, we would love to have you, but this wouldn't be a good place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and then the other one, this was more of a, a personal, uh, sort of a personal preference, but we had a, I had a student who was from a large urban area. Um, that was what she was used to. That was home to her. And she really wanted to go to graduate school in a place that was in a big city. And, and that's not necessarily, you know, our school is more of a college town. And so 
you know, we talked a lot about it and she ended up focusing on schools that were in large, large cities. And so that's part of the advice about making sure that you're happy in the umpteen hours you spend outside of lab each day. Make sure that it's a place that you can be happy living. Yeah, you're going to be. Yeah, I think some people don't think about that enough beyond being a graduate student. You're going to be moving and finding a place to live and making friends and going to the grocery store, <laughs> whatever place it is that you, you go to graduate school. And you need to be happy with your life uh, also. Well, that's great. And application season is continuing. And what we want to do is to be able to do a series of episodes now so that we get you prepared for this process. In our next episode, what we really want to cover is the most painful, scary, uh, uncomfortable part of the application, which is the dreaded personal statement. Josh, you've got a good lead on a person who is an expert on writing personal statements. Yeah, I think this is going to be really great. And really, if you think about the application, besides the deciding where to apply in the first place, that personal statement is the part that you have the most control over, uh, which can be good, but also puts a lot of pressure on you as an applicant to craft just the right statement. And how do you talk about yourself? That's always really hard. It's gross. It's all gross. Um, And then we'll bring Beth back to talk about kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what an admissions committee is looking for, and then some advice that you can use for your interview. If you happen to get invited for an interview, what are the things that the committee is looking for when you're visiting and what are the things you can do to make a good impression? I think those are aspects of the application process that you can learn by doing it, but uh, by that point, maybe too late. So better to learn now and put your best foot forward on those interviews. That sounds really great, Dan. I am looking forward to talking more about these topics in the coming weeks, even without IPAs. It's going to be so sad. Oh, but not sad. We're going to discover. Hey, it's You're o- going to bring another pumpkin beer in here, aren't you? Uh, maybe, maybe I'll avoid. I feel, like, I feel like I have to. Okay. I've, I've been on a little bit of an Oktoberfest kick, Dan. I think uh, maybe I'll bring some Oktoberfest. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. All, All right. right. We can handle it. All right. Well, if you have a question or topic idea you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We certainly love the feedback. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and special thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. And to Jeff for bringing us this 120-minute IPA. It, it, it was worth trying. It really was. It, I'm glad I tried it. Yeah, but I have three more in the fridge. So I have to figure out what to do about that. I'm sure you'll find the usage. All right, Josh. Well, we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye.